a little while, go all the way to the end of the New Testament, go to Revelation, and then right before the book of Revelation, you'll come face to face with the book of Jude. I want to begin by asking a question that I think some of the children will enjoy. I want to ask what comes into your mind when you think about a pirate. And everyone loves pirates, right? When you think about a pirate, you might, if you're like me, immediately think about a a, a rough-looking character, half-shaven, bad breath, nasty-looking teeth. He's probably wearing an eye patch. He probably has a, a wooden leg or maybe two wooden legs, and he forces other sailors to walk the plank, right? And my favorite part about pirates is they get to say, aye, aye, matey, right? I remember the first time I went on the Pirates of the Caribbean, I was about six years old, scared me to death. Especially those little waterfall episodes. I just, my Mickey Mouse shirt got wet and it just, it was not a good day for me. When you think about a pirate, you think about a a surly character whose language is gruff and whose habits are offensive. Now, the New Testament tells us about an altogether different kind of a pirate. And when I found this this photograph, I thought, I I, I had an image in my mind. And when I found this, that was the image. It was crazy. Because the New Testament paints a portrait of a pirate that is a, a different kind of a pirate. It's a kind of person who Paul the Apostle describes as the kind of individual who creeps into households and deceives people and leads them away. So said Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. The Word of God describes pirates who have an appearance of godliness, yet they deny God's power. These pirates pervert the grace of God. We're going to learn more about that in the weeks to come as we study the book of Jude. These are pirates who deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. These pirates deny the lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we call these modern-day pirates false teachers. These are, these are wicked individuals. These are apostates. And it's the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus Christ who writes about these pirates. These theological scoundrels who seek to damage the church and destroy the church and wreak havoc amongst the people of God. So this morning we begin this new study through the shortest book in the New Testament, the book of Jude. And I want to have you stand with me as we read the the greeting this morning. And we will limit our discussion to verses 1 and 2. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. May I remind you that when you open up one of the books of the Bible and you see the, the preamble or the greeting, that's not something you skip over in your Bible reading. This is the authoritative, infallible, inerrant Word of God. So read it with me. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Father, it's with great anticipation that we open this book, we read this book, and we look forward to studying it in the weeks to come, and uh, just reading these words this very moment and looking at these words earlier this morning fills my heart with joy. The amazing truth that we will come face to face with today, I I pray that it would encourage this church family. I pray that it would build them up. I know there are many needs in our church family right now, as in all church families. But I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would minister to someone just where they need to hear the word of God. That you would comfort them, that you would encourage them, that you would challenge them. And so may we have hearts that are receptive and and ready to receive the truth of your inerrant word. We trust you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that you, you notice about the author is if you will go back with me to 
Jude 1, is that he refers to himself as a servant. Most notably, he refers to himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really what Jude is talking about here is he is calling himself a bond slave. He is a bond slave. The word that is translated servant in the English Standard Version comes from a a vitally important New Testament word. This is a Greek word. It's the Greek word doulos. This word carries so much importance that several years ago, John MacArthur became concerned about the multitude of Bible translations that were translating doulos as servant instead of, yes, slave. Some of your translations will translate this word as slave. But the author, make no doubt about it, is calling himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Just this morning, I was surveying some information online. And I saw a Christian individual who was inviting people to his church in Texas. And the tagline said, we are no longer slaves. And what do you think ran through my mind that very moment? What did he mean? We are no longer slaves to sin. And knowing this individual... I'm confident that's what he meant. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer live under the tyranny of sin. It's no longer our master. Sin is no longer our foreman. Sin can't tell us what to do anymore. We, we have, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel, been delivered from the power of sin. We've been delivered from the, from the penalty of sin. It's an amazing thing. However... Even though we are no longer slaves to sin, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, I want you to remember this morning that you are a slave of Jesus Christ. I was teaching a class over 10 years ago, and one of the older men in the class, is I was was trying to hammer home the importance of what it means to be a doulos, a servant, a slave, a bondservant. This man raised his hand. And he said, I am not comfortable being called a slave. And you know me, just as gruff as I am, I said, get used to it. (laughs) I I know as Americans, we we have a, a very checkered past when it comes to the institution of slavery. And may I say for the record, it is one of the most horrible black marks on the history of America. There's nothing about slavery, the institution of slavery, that I can say anything good about. It, it, was a, it was a horrible thing. There were even followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you know, who had slaves. And they are accountable for that particular sin. But I want you to remember in a theological sense, we need to, as my friend learned and as I learned together, we need to get used to the terminology and more than terminology, get used to the reality that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Let me make it easier for you. If you're like my friend, if you have a hard time digesting the the language of being a slave of Jesus, if you're not a slave, if you're not a slave, then you're an enemy of God. Well, that makes it very easy to be called a slave, right? You're either a slave of Jesus or you're an enemy of Jesus. This is what John MacArthur writes in his book entitled Slave. He says, to be a Christian in the true sense of the term is to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. The name suggests much more than superficial association with Christ. Rather, it demands a deep affection for allegiance to Him and submission to his word. And so before we even get out of the gate, before we even take any further steps in the book of Jude, I want to ask you a a vitally important question. I want to ask you this morning, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place in your life where you said, God, I confess that you are God. And I am not. And I confess that I have broken your holy law. 
And I confess that, that I, have, I have spurned your law and I have hated your law. I confess that I am a lawbreaker. And I realize that if I died today, I would go to hell and bear the weight of all my sin for all eternity. And you would be just. God, I, I turn from my sin. I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I repent of my sin. Yesterday on Iron Man, we talked about the notion of repentance. And, and there are many in the church these days telling pastors, stop telling the sinners to repent. It offends them. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the greatest thing I could tell you today is repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus so that you will live with him forever. So that your sins will be Completely forgiven. You say, but what about what I did in 1974? What about, I, what, what about that thing I did last week? What about the, the bad business deal that I made? What about the person I defrauded? What about that person I cussed out on the road? What about the person I ripped off? What about the friend that I hurt? What about the woman that I abused? What about the child that I beat? These are sins, and as you know, there are millions of sins. If you turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says in no uncertain terms, you will be rescued, you will be forgiven, you will be delivered from all your sin, and God will view you as positionally righteous. I had a professor at Multnomah University who used to use the illustration of a coffee filter. And as I was a sleepy college student, all of a sudden, it's coffee filter? When? Where? And he said that Jesus is a sort of coffee filter. Is God the Father looks at sinful humanity, and as he looks through the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he looks through the, the filter of God's redemptive work on the cross, what does he see? He does not see sin. He does not see guilt. He does not see muck. He sees someone who is positionally righteous. And if you will turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, God will view you as such. You will be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as such, you will be a slave to the Savior. Now, Jude writes to the church in this, this little book, and he offers three things. I'm going to give them to you in advance, and we'll talk more about this next week. He offers an encouragement to these dear Christians. He offers a warning, and then finally he offers a challenge. First, he sets out, as we will see next week, as we begin in verse 3, he sets out when he begins to pen this letter. No word processors, no computers. He begins to, word by word by word, to write an encouraging letter to this group of Christ followers. But when he takes a deeper look at what's going on in this church, he realizes that the theological pirates have arrived. He realizes, and I want to speak very candidly and very transparently and very practically. It's as if he sees in this particular church, in this family of believers, he sees that false teachers have slipped into the youth ministry. These theological wolves, these theological pirates have, have, have subtly slipped into the children's department. He sees that these, these pirates are leading small groups. And he, he, he is the author of God's word, begins to scratch his head. And he says, I, I, I meant to write an encouraging letter, but this group of people, they need more than encouragement because false teachers and apostates have slipped in. And by the way, this is one of the reasons we, one of the many reasons we take church membership so seriously here at Christ Fellowship. Some of you are considering membership, and what a joy it, it is every time a man and a woman or a family or whoever it might be who's interested in membership, they, they share their grace story with the elders. And then we bring them forward to be members of this church family. Well, what had happened in this particular group of Christ followers is evidently this process wasn't as taken as seriously as, as they should have because false teachers, theological pirates were slipping into the ranks. These were Gnostics. These were Gnostics who were, as I said earlier, denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
These were false teachers who were promoting license. These were kinds of, of false teachers who said, it doesn't matter how you live, do whatever you want. You're free in Christ. Have you ever had someone say that to you in this culture? You can do whatever you want. These are false teachers who were carrying out their sinful desires. They were, as verses 11 and 12 tell us, they were, carrying, they were pursuing selfish gain. These were false teachers who were sparking division in the local church. If you have ever been part of a church family where there was one or two or a group of people who were sparking division, I can't think of anything worse. I can't think of anything worse than than someone who promotes division in a local church family. These false teachers were arrogantly advancing their heretical agendas. Now, I mentioned a word, and it might be a new word for some of you. It's, It's the word Gnosticism. It starts with G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. This is a religious movement. This is a heretical movement. And this movement declared many things. But fundamentally, the Gnostics said that matter, matter, anything you can touch or feel or see, all matter is evil. And the spirit is good. Matter is evil and spirit is good. Therefore, the spiritual, they said, was to be cultivated and nurtured and fed with freedom to pursue good inclinations. But in addition, the Gnostics said that we were also free to give vent to the the pleasures of the flesh. Thus, the heart of this apostasy was that it turned the grace of God into license. Jude wrote to warn this family of believers of this apostasy, of their wrong conduct, of their sinful ways, and their false doctrine. Finally, Jude encouraged these believers, he warned these believers, and then he challenged these dear Christians to contend for the faith, as we'll see next week, in light of all the circumstances that they were living under. So this morning, the title of the message as we look at the first two verses, is soul anchor. The soul anchor. Don't you feel like you need an anchor in your life? I remember when I was about 14 years old, I went out to a gentleman that attended our church that we grew up in, and he had to go to work, and we stayed at his house for, actually, I think the whole week, and he had a boat on the lake. And he told my brother and I, I still can't believe we got away with this. He told my brother and I, feel free to take the boat out on the lake. Have a good time. I'll never forget my, my brother, a motorboat, right? <laughs> said, Ooh. And so my brother and I, we go out on this boat. And it was about noon. It was a hot summer day. And we stopped the engine. And both my brother and I fell asleep. Pretty dumb, right? When we woke up. You know, you wake up and you're kind of like, you take, you get the eye boogers out of your eye and you look around and you focus. Where are we? What is this? What state are we in? Well, what had happened? We, we drifted. And the reason we, we drifted to the other side of the lake is that we didn't throw the anchor in. And so in the Christian life, I believe that we need an anchor We need something to stabilize us. We need something to help us and to secure us during the difficult days. And if we were all honest and we confronted this last week, if we were honest and we confront our our insecurity and our depression and all the things that we wrestle with in our life, emotions and spiritual issues, we realize that we need an anchor. Too often we find ourselves in the Christian life filled with doubt. And I won't have you do this, but if I said to raise both hands if you ever doubt your Christianity, my suspicion is a a mass of people would raise their hands. We are tend to be people who are filled with doubt. We find ourselves weak at the knees. Sometimes we even doubt our own salvation. Have you ever felt that kind of insecurity? I have people come into my study and... And they say, Pastor, I I just don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm a Christian. And it might surprise you when I I typically tell those people, yeah, you're a Christian. Because usually the people that doubt their salvation are the ones that are taking it very, very seriously. Coincidentally enough, it's those who are engaged in horrific, horrific sin. Assume they're saved when they're not. 
And then my challenge to that person, it's not comfort, but it's examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Sometimes you feel like your faith is on the verge of crumbling. You just feel like you're going to crack up. You feel like you're going to lose it. You feel like you're, you're one step away from losing your salvation. In this little letter, Jude tightly secures the anchors of security that serve as bookends, if you will. The anchors of security are bookends, and they are meant to encourage and build up this group of Christ followers as the theological pirates have subtly slipped in to their ranks. I brought my favorite bookends this morning. Some of you might uh, recognize these. Uh, This is a a sculpture by the artist Rodin, and this is called The Thinker. And I've lost track of how many sets of these I have. I have, I have different ones that, that are in different shapes and made of different materials. But I just, I just love the thinker. It, just, it makes me happy to look at the thinker. And so I've had people over the years gift me with these bookends. And so I wanted to bring these bookends to, to make a very important point and to illustrate what's happening in the opening preamble and the greeting in Jude. So I brought several of my favorite books and, and to show you that the bookends have a, a very basic function. It keeps the books together. It holds them together. And if you look in Jude, you'll see that the first book in is really verse 1. And verse 1 is basically the book in that tells these Christ followers that they are called, that they are loved, and they are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep this book in in your mind and look in your Bible at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's book in number 1. Anyone want to know what book in number two is? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Go to the end of Jude. I, I said Bueller, Bueller yesterday to my wife, and my daughter went, what? <laughs> Raise your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Do you want to know what the other bookend is? This, this is the other bookend that holds this group of books together. Verses 24 and 25. This bookend tells the Christ followers that God will preserve their salvation until the end of the age. Read it with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Do you need that? I need that. To him who is able. That's a powerful word that we'll look at at the end of the series. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you as blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. These are the the divine bookends. This is... The perseverance book in number one. This is the perseverance book in number two. And I've always been struck at how, how Jude inserted these bookends to help these dear followers of Jesus who are being assaulted by these false teachers that God has you. He's got you. He will keep you. Nothing, nothing can take away the salvation he purchased for you. And so that's the, really the essence of where we want to go today. What does the scripture teach us about our security in Christ? Now, some of you might say, this isn't something I wrestle with. I, I realize I'm secure in Christ. You understand the doctrine. You understand the, the history behind the doctrine. You understand what the Bible says. But I have found one of the biggest questions for pastors is people who struggle with their assurance. In fact, the the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, several years ago, and I highly recommend this book, he wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Now, why did he write that book? I'm convinced he wrote it for me, even though I've never met him, because I I think I asked Jesus into my heart 7,000 times before I turned 7 years old. Am I the only one that did that? Ah, I see lots of heads bobbing up. And it wasn't 7,000. It was like 45 or 50. Well, still, you did it a lot of times. And what Greer focuses on is that once you're a follower of Christ, you're in. 
You're in the kingdom of God. You're, you're safe. You're secure. And so we're going to see that today. There's three headings I want to share with you briefly this morning. The first is, is this, is that God summons us. I love the word summons. He summons us to salvation. And there's three aspects of this summons I want you to see. The first is, what does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be called? If you go back to Jude 1, Jude says, to those who are, do you see that word? Called. To those who are called. That is a word that you might read in your devotions. You might get up in the morning and read to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You might be tempted to to kind of skip over that word. You might be tempted to say, it's just the greeting portion. It's just the preamble. It's the, hey, how you doing? And that would be a, a, a major mistake. Because the word called comes from a Greek word that has a a really important meaning. It means to be invited by God via the proclamation of the gospel to obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom through Christ. The word means to be divinely selected. It means to receive a divine summons. It's amazing. How many watched the football game yesterday? That wasn't so amazing. But it would be like if, if I got a call tomorrow, if, if Carmel said, Pastor Dave, Pete Carroll's on the line. Wow. I said, hello? Pete, how are you doing? He says, listen, I know you don't know me, but I want to invite you to come to practice next year with the Seahawks. You and I, we're going to have lunch together. It's just you and I. It's on me. And then you have a chance to meet the team. That would be called a summons that I would be very excited about. Would you be excited about that? I'd want to ask him one question. Why do you chew so much gum? And how much do you spend? Right? But that would be an amazing invitation to get a a personal invitation, a summons, if you will, from an NFL coach. Well, theologically... It's so much more important than this because we receive, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you receive a summons from the sovereign God of the universe. Would you go over to Ephesians chapter 1? And we we studied Ephesians several, several months ago, but look at Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 3. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When you think about the divine call in Jude, this stresses the fact that in eternity past, and I don't know if you're like me, but I have a hard time wrapping my mind around eternity past. It was back there a long time ago. In eternity past, God the Father chose some, not all. Some like to say it's all. The scripture never says that he chose all, not even one time. He chose some to receive eternal life to the praise of his glorious name. What does it mean to be called? It means to receive a divine summons to salvation. The second question I want to look with you for a moment is, who is it who is called? I already alluded to the fact that God doesn't call everyone. He calls some. But we begin by looking in the pages of the Old Testament. I want to have you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. And we're going to look at a few verses in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41. And and turn to verse 9. Isaiah 41, 9. And the point I want to make here, it's a very important point when we ask the question, who is called? We recognize that it was Israel who was called by God. Think about this. In the Old Testament economy, God set his affection on one group of people. Israel. And some people don't like to hear it, but it's true nonetheless. God did not set his affection on the Babylonians. God did not set his affection on the Hittites. 
God did not set His affection on the Persians. God did not set His affection on anyone on this planet with the exception of Israel. Look at Isaiah 41.9. speaks of taking them from the ends of the earth and He called from its farthest corner saying to you, You are my servant. I have, remember Ephesians 1.4, I have chosen you and not cast you off. This is referring to Israel. Isaiah 42, verse 6, we read these words. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I have, you ready, called. He called Israel. There was a divine summons in the Old Testament. He said, I am the first, I am the last, I am the Alpha and the Omega. There's something that's very encouraging now that surfaces in Scripture. I want to have you turn with me back to the New Testament and look at Acts chapter 13. And if you have your Bible, I want to have you turn there because it is a... It is a very, very important section of Scripture. In my Bible, I have written these words. And I would even encourage you to do the same. I have written next to Acts chapter 13, 47 and 48, the verses we will read, the, the Jewish-Gentile shift. Now, the vast majority of you are Gentiles, and so when I tell you that there is a Jewish-Gentile shift, you should be on the edge of your seat, ready to know, well, what's the Jewish-Gentile shift? Because we've already learned that in the pages of the Old Testament, God only set His affection on Israel. And the vast majority of you are not Jewish. You're Gentiles. Therefore, you're in big trouble. But a shift takes place in Acts chapter 13, verse 47. For the Lord has commanded us, saying... You'll recognize this. I have made you, that is Israel, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And I want you to imagine if you were around during the writing of the book of Acts and you read this section of Scripture for the first time as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, and you read verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is an amazing turn of events. The designation of those who are called then is transferred to the church to the Gentiles in the pages of the New Testament. And if you go back to Jude, there's a word that we dare not skip over. Now that we recognize that we too, if we are believers, are included in the covenant along with Israel, we are called, get this, beloved in God. Beloved in God. That is what God calls us. We have been included in the covenant. Romans chapter 1 says that we are called to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I want you to notice with me, if you would be so kind to turn also to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. As we consider this question, who is called? I want you to note the relationship between calling and being a holy saint of God. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
You see, the, the reason that God calls us to himself is addressed in Ephesians chapter 1. He calls us to be holy and blameless in his sight. And I want you to tuck that away because that will become important in just a moment. But there's a third question I want to address, and it's an important one. That is, will the called come? You say, what, what are you referring to? That is to say, if, if Pete Carroll called me tomorrow and invited me to Kirkland to have lunch with him at Seahawk training camp, could I tell him I'm too busy? I certainly could. I'd be a fool to do that, but I could tell him, uh, thanks but no thanks, or even I'll take a rain check. And so we want to ask this question on a theological level. Will the called come? That is to say, will those whom God gives a divine summons, will they come? And here we must make a, a very important distinction between what theologians refer to as the general call and the effectual call. The general call and the effectual call. Let me define it quickly. The general call is the, the free offer of the gospel. What I did a few moments ago when I challenged you to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be considered the general call. And I have no question that there's someone here in the sanctuary who heard the general call and they said, thanks but no thanks. That's not tolerant. That doesn't appeal to my sense of, of right or wrong or justice or dignity. That doesn't match with my worldview. Thanks, but no thanks. I'll be kind. I'll sit through the rest of the service. But when you say amen, I'm out of here. So in that sense, the general call can be resisted. And people resist it all the time. But the other part of the call I want you to look at is what's referred to as the effectual call or internal calling. And this is what it is. The effectual call is the call of God to his elect through the preaching of the gospel, whereby he summons them and they respond in saving faith. That is to say, the effectual call guarantees the right kind of response. Would you turn over to Matthew chapter 20, 22? And it's, it's one short verse that would be worth highlighting this morning. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. Verse 14 reads, Many are called, but few are chosen. In one sentence, we see what I've been discussing or teaching, and that is that there is the general call, many are called, there is also the effectual call, few are are chosen. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And so each person that receives the effectual call will respond and is guaranteed justification, is also guaranteed glorification. And if you're, you're wondering how someone can be so certain, how I can be so certain to know that all whom God calls will most certainly come, let me read Romans chapter, chapter 8, beginning in verse 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now listen, and those whom he predestined, if you think just logically for a minute, those whom he predestined, he also called now, when you read the Bible and you see the word called, from now on, I want to encourage you to ask, is that the general call or the effectual call? Is that the call can be resisted? Or is that the call that is the divine summons? And in this particular passage, we, we know that this speaks of the effectual call. Because Paul says, those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians in church history have referred to this section of Scripture as the golden chain of salvation. There are, no, there are no broken links in the golden chain of salvation. All those whom God calls will most certainly come. I want to show you a photograph on, on the screen of uh, one of the many courthouses in America. And depending on the circumstances, the general public is invited to attend or to sit in on court proceedings. In this sense, one could say that a general call 
is extended. You can, you can sit in a murder trial. You can sit in, in a trial that oversees some kind of a crime. But when you receive a summons, which I know many of you have, when you receive a summons to appear in court, that summons is addressed only to you. So when, when BJ, you get, you get the summons, right? Right, BJ, you open it. Oh, man, jury duty. Guess what? Kayleen's not invited. It's only for BJ. I received a, a summons to be a juror several months ago. My wife's not invited. It's only for me. It's a summons for an individual to come. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. Because given the proper excuse, you can refuse this call. You can refuse the summons. But never is that the case with God's call. When we talk about the effectual call, the offer of the gospel is so beautiful that it effectually draws every one of God's elect to saving faith. I want to ask, what are the practical implications? This is a weighty theological reality, but what are the practical implications of receiving the divine summons? There are three. Please remember that when the, when the days get difficult, when the storms begin to blow all around you, remember this, that God calls you beloved. Just, just meditate on that for a minute. God calls you Beloved, He set his affection on you in eternity past. He loves you with an everlasting love, and he has so from all eternity. He set his affection on you. Number two, remember that when the days get difficult, God calls you specifically. His love is, is like the point of an arrow. It is aimed directly at you. God loves you. He set his affection on you in particular. And then third, remember that when days get difficult, your only response is to worship the king. A song I've enjoyed over the years by Casting Crowns. You have to love Casting Crowns, right? Uh, Praise Him in the Storm. What an amazing song. What an encouraging song. When, When life gets difficult, I will praise Him in the storm. Some of you have been doing that. You're going through a difficult season and you're praising God through the storm. Remember this, that God... God summons you to salvation. But secondly, I want you to see, and we're still in verse 1, believe it or not, uh, God not only summons you, but He secures you in your salvation. He secures you in your salvation. And we want to broach just for a moment the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, Erwin Lutzer, says this, He says, unconditional security teaches that the God who chose his people unto eternal life will indeed lose none. They who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will assuredly be saved. Now, there's some clarifications I want to make. Many of you have heard the doctrine proposed as once saved, always saved. Have you heard that? Once saved, always saved. And On face value, there's nothing wrong with calling the perseverance of the saints once saved, always saved, so long as you have some clarification. There are things that perseverance does not mean. There are things that perseverance of the saints does not mean. There's three in particular. One, it does not mean that we live unholy lives. That is to say, you can't say, I'm in a sin so that grace increases. Paul addresses that, doesn't he, in the book of Romans. Shall we say that... We should sin so that grace may increase. Perish the thought. By no means, he says. The genuine believer has a, a new heart, has a new inclination, has a new set of desires. We love to serve God. We love to please God. We love to worship God. There's a second clarifying point. The perseverance of the saints does not advance a cavalier attitude toward the Christian life. That is, you just don't live and let live. You just don't live in a, in a random, haphazard way. And then third, it does not mean that Christians are sinless. And it doesn't mean that Christians never backslide. There's examples in Scripture. We don't have time to look at them today, but consider the example of, of King David. He was a man who was in a horribly backslidden condition. Consider Joden, Jonah. I don't know if you ever considered him as a backslider, but he had that season in his life, that short season where he said, 
not interested in God. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he went the opposite direction. And of course, you know, Peter is an example of someone who backslid. But I want you to remember the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says, a man on a ship may be knocked down on deck by the waves again and again. But he is never, never washed overboard. You can get assaulted by every enemy and every worldview and everything in the Christian life. You can be knocked down flat on your face, but you will never be swept off the ship of salvation. Positively, what does perseverance of the saints mean? And I'll, I'll run through this quickly. Number one, God promises to guard the salvation that he granted. He promises to guard the salvation that he granted. In one of my favorite chapter, chapters in the Gospel of John, in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, this is what we read in Jesus' prayer to the Father in verse 11. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of his elect. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. God promises, the Lord Jesus Christ promises to guard the salvation that he has given us. Second, God promises to, to complete the good work that he started. You know the verse in Philippians chapter 1 very well, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Third, we've already looked at this, and God promises to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans chapter five, or 8, verse 29. Moreover, fourthly, God promises that nothing will separate us from his love. And I would highlight Romans eight thirty-five to 39, but time is short and would encourage you to read that on your own. Fifth, God promises to secure his people in their salvation. I can't help but read... In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, we read these words. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And as you talk to people, you're, you're, you will hear people make reference to John chapter 10, and they will, they will hear the great reality that God will preserve your salvation for all eternity. And they say, but I can still walk outside the covenant. I can still make a free will choice to walk away from God. And I want to tell you as graciously as I know, I know how, that's never taught in the Scripture. You'll never see a verse that even comes close to a person who can walk away from the Christian faith, if they're a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask this question. How does the indestructibility of my salvation affect my security as a person? How does it affect me? Well, the first way it affects me is that I have, I have no fear of condemnation. I have no fear of judgment. When we Study the book of Romans. We will look at this verse in great detail. But Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no judgment for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for Christ's followers. Second, how does the instructability of my salvation affect me as a person? It helps me to place my confidence in God's holy character and His ability to work for me as opposed to my feeble attempts to live the Christian life. Have you given up trying to live the Christian life on your own? It's a losing battle. You can't do it. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave Himself for me. Third, my security is based on God's promise to secure my salvation, not my ability to maintain it. I love what John MacArthur said. He said, if, if we could lose our salvation, we would. That doesn't sound very deep, but it's really deep. If, if it was possible for me to lose my salvation, I would have lost it a long time ago. 
because I know what my heart is like apart from grace. If it's given your choice, if you could lose your salvation, you would. There's a third thing, and we'll close, and it's very short. God not only, not only summons us to salvation and secures us in our salvation, but here's what Jude 2 says. Jude says that God surrounds us. He surrounds us. He surrounds us despite the, the false teachers around us. He surrounds us despite the, the winds and the waves of apostasy. And Jude says he surrounds us with three things in particular. He surrounds us with his mercy. He surrounds us with his peace. And he surrounds us with his love. And notice that God surrounds us with his mercy, peace, and love exponentially. Now, I'm no math wizard. In fact, I did horrible in math in school. But I know this. I know what it means to be multiplied. And that's exactly what Jude says happens. He surrounds us and he grants mercy, peace, and love. Jude says, may it be multiplied to you. May you receive mercy after mercy after, after peace after peace after love. May it be multiplied to you. So how secure is our salvation? Let me give you the truth point and we'll close. Our salvation is unshakable. For God is the eternal anchor of our souls who summons us to salvation, secures us in salvation, and who surrounds us. As you begin your week, as you begin a a fresh week, my prayer is that you would find refreshment and encouragement in the unshakable, unchangeable, irrevocable, mighty promises of God. Why? Because God and God alone is your anchor. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for helping us to understand these these few verses and helping us to understand the the amazing security that is ours in Christ. As we come to the table now, I pray that you would remind us of these things, that as we partake of the the bread that points to the body of Jesus, as we partake of the, the cup which points to the blood of our Savior, that you would encourage us this morning, that we'd stand fast in the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.